This is Have Food Will Travel podcast. <clears throat> Today is Wednesday, November 16th, 2022, and the time is 4.01 p.m. Yep, we're good to go. Um, so, guys, today we're going to discuss some of the history of food trailers and food trucks, both on the civilian and military side of things. Um, this is my co-host, Ashley, Ash with Breach to Go Coffee Company. She's a local food truck owner here. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and, you know, what, what it is you do and what got you into this first off? Let's start there, and then we will go down the line and start working on the history of these things. Oh, man, this is one of my favorites. I am so excited to be here. First off, thank you for having me. Pretty excited about this. All right, so for me, I own Barista Go Coffee Co. out of Lake of the Ozarks. We are a mobile coffee shop. Uh, really proud to say that we are the lake's local coffee shop. And by that, I mean the beans that we use for our coffee and our espresso, all roasted right here in town by Firefly Valley Farms out of Camdenton. Uh, the roasters there have been roasting beans for decades, and I am riding their coattail of good products. They have the best beans that I use for coffee and espresso beverages. I do make them hot over ice and frozen all to order. I've got over 30 different flavors, and we are creating new things daily. It's such a fun experience. I've been in food and beverage myself for over 20 years. Um, opened the food truck June 12th of last year was our first day so we're just hitting the year and a half mark very happy to say we've beat a lot of the odds and we're having more and more fun as we go um first experience being mobile in this food truck and i don't think that that's ever going to change for me i want to be in a food truck the rest of my career man i uh let's dig into the history of this stuff uh i will let you get started a little bit here and i may i'll give you some feedback with the civilian side and then we'll kind of switch back and forth between the military stuff as well all right so in my best effort to keep this from sounding like just a book report i have thrown in a lot of my own commentary i'm sure i'm gonna be full of it along the way hopefully you could pitch in some of your thoughts along the way as well on different spots that i cover and just throw in your thoughts and comments there. Um, and for the sake of covering all my bases, I included food carts and street vendors in my studies. Vehicles weren't always a thing, but slinging delicious food outside of a brick and mortar has always been around. And so I wanted to touch on all the different bases that I could. Um, all right, what came first, Jesus or food carts? Food carts. Food carts, that is totally right. Uh, history of food trucks went back farther than I expected, way farther. Um, even though things have obviously expanded and advanced in our current day and age, street food can be found in almost every part of history. Um, I'm talking, there's evidence, literally evidence of food carts and street food in the years ending in BC. We're going back to like ancient Rome with this. Um, there was a volcanic eruption around the year 75 AD, and that covered most of what we consider to be ancient Rome, a lot of the cities. And they've even found evidence of street vendors in uncovering the volcanic ash and different depictions and different artifacts that they've been able to test. And so it's showing us that back in the years of ancient Rome and little bit further research that spans from the creation in 625 bc to the fall in about 476 a.d 
And so we've got about a century of ancient Rome having evidence of different food vendors uh, on the street, walking around with baskets. You know, I would assume most of these are covered in linen. Um, you'd find them in the places for the wealthy and elite, such the such as the Colosseums, where they would serve spectators and the soldiers at the uh, different events they would have at the Colosseums. But they'd also be found in most markets. And you can even find them in places like bathhouses and brothels. Um, you know, you have to imagine... Uh, mobile food vendors then are obviously really different than the ones that we know. Um, and also, you could say the same thing for living conditions. Back in the days of ancient Rome, there were very un it was very uncommon to live in a home with an oven. It was very uncommon to have any cooking, you know, measures whatsoever. Uh, there were a lot of what we would call apartment buildings, but it was very dilapidated. It was, you know, four or five, six story buildings completely made out of stone and really nothing but a place to lay down at night and stay dry in the rain. Sometimes I would assume. Um, so eating out in the days of ancient Rome is far more common than even it is today for us, because that was just their way of getting a hot meal or getting some food that's actually cooked at the end of the day. Um, and so you know, a lot of the times there would be breads and there would be, you know, fruits and vegetables, but oftentimes there would be meat. And, um, you know, we've also depictions of the circular loaves of bread, string tied around them. They're carried like a grocery bag by whoever has them on their wrist. And, you know, things like this were common goods you'd find in the markets. And along with things like legumes, you know, chickpeas especially were um, pretty popular back in ancient Rome. Uh, cooked several different ways, beans, grains. Um, the commoners in Rome ate very little in terms of meat, as that was more enjoyed by the elite. It was kind of a delicacy. You know, the elite would have, you know, chicken was insanely up there in the delicacies, along with things like flamingo and different animals that we don't often eat along with chicken. And so the elite would have the meat and the commoners would eat more and get their proteins from things like chickpeas and beans. Um, they also had access to sort of something referred to as offal. You ever heard of offal? I have actually not heard of that. What, it, what is that? Offal. O-F-F-A-L. It's kind of like their version of what we, we would call a hot dog today. Um, it'd be like the innards, the offcuts, the fat, and they just kind of, you know, mash it down and process it to make like a meat substance, you know, ancient Rome's version of spam and hot dogs. And that was fried in lard. And they do things like serve that on a sandwich in between breads or they'd otherwise cook it in the soups and stews. And there were different recipes that were made to be either served hot or cold, you know, and you know, regardless of how it was enjoyed, it was a dependable way for the commoners to go and enjoy protein at an affordable rate, which, you know, was a very common uh, option. So they had to go have processed hot dogs too. But I mean, that was top of the line for them. Definitely sounds a lot more unhealthy than what I found on the military food trailer side. <laughs> Oh, man, I I don't know, man. We're going to get into some really interesting things along the way. Um, I'll tell you my favorites coming up in the 80s and 90s. I can't wait to tell you about that one. But, I, you know, next step, we're even staying in medieval times, you know, around the 11th century and 12th century. Uh, call it medieval fast food, if you will. 
this is the time that you could regularly get hot, ready to eat foods on the streets, often in the form of pies and soups and stews. And I'm talking, there are ovens on wheels. Just picture the stone oven, a wheel on each side, and it's got a couple sticks to help you wheel it down the road. And they'd have the fire going, and they'd just be cooking right in front of you. So <clears throat> there are records all the way back that show at least one street food vendor around in the year 1170. Um, I mean, that's over a thousand years ago, they've got evidence of street food vendors. London has several records of vendors in the year 1212. And by the 1300s, there were dozens on record. Um, and in those times, London was home to both the rich and the poor. Uh, once again, most evidence suggests that street food was more common to the poor citizens as it was still common to have homes without means for cooking. Um, what that meant was that most people had to seek out street food if they wanted any chance of a hot meal. So what started in ancient room kind of continued into the medieval times. Gotcha. Yeah, street food has definitely been around forever. You know, what we know is food trucks and trailers. You can go over to different countries and they're, they're still out cooking on the street. There's not as many regulations as that we have here. Um, we've been, I've been doing this for about four years, going, going on four and a half years now. And I'm still discovering new stuff every single day when it comes to rules, laws, stuff like that. And we'll dig into that kind of stuff in later episodes. But, you know, on the military side of things, it actually went back a lot farther than what I thought as well. We're talking, you're seeing typical food trailers, like actual trailers around the World War II time. Um, they, at that time, they were actually called field kitchens. They weren't what you would look and see as a food trailer today, per se. But they've, they've definitely been around since World War One, World War Two, as far as field kitchens itself. Um, it what that is is just a typical uh, kitchen uh, or a commissary food truck that has been provided to people out in the field and on the battlefront by the military itself. Now, um, it in 2015 you got. I'm I'm going to jump forward here real quick, but in 2015 you actually started seeing the DOD and APES, which is the Air Force, the Army and Air Force Exchange Service, they actually contracted a food truck builder to build modern day food trucks. And for I for the Army? For the Army and for the uh for the Army, for the Air Force, and for, you know, Navy obviously has its own exchange, and then they cover the Marine Corps. So most of what I'm going to talk about is coming out of the Army because that's what I'm familiar with. But, yeah, in 2015, it was actually the, the first like, modern-day food trail opened up in Seoul, South Korea. Um, it was done by a Sergeant First Class, Kevin Bell. Um, he got with he he got with DOD and realized that people were not liking the DFAC food. And when they were out in the field, all they were having was the stuff coming from the DFAC on, you know, a deuce and a half truck. And so they have actually made it to where somebody can actually call um, MWR, which is morale, warfare and resilience. Um, they can call them because they're contracted with them and APHES and be like, hey, we want a food trailer out here for our soldiers. Hey, you know, whatever it may be. And that's kind of where the modern day food truck came into the um, military itself. 
you know, when I when I was in back in 2012, in that time, we didn't have a, what we see as a modern day food truck. It was literally an F-250 or an F-350 or a Dodge, whatever it may be. And they just had a little silver box in the bed and had a way to heat food. And it was prepackaged food. They'd come out to the ranges while you were doing stuff. And they would just start selling food to soldiers as we were doing our thing. But now they have a whole setup. There's even one down in Fort Rucker. It is actually a brick and mortar, but they built a uh, food truck. And they have a whole entire bar on this thing. Like an alcoholic bar? Yes. And oh, snap. <laughs> you, obviously, you obviously can't get that on duty. But you obviously can't do that while you're on duty, but you definitely can do it when you're out and about on the weekends. <clears throat> well, I think that's wonderful because soldiers aren't allowed to leave at will a lot of the times, are they? No, not really. Not unless you dip out and don't tell anybody. And well, as long as you don't get caught anyways. Correct. <laughs> But anyway, I want to say that everything I have found predates yours. This is crazy. Like you, you jumped in 2015 and I'm pretty sure I stopped at about 2011 in my 2014, I think is the furthest date on my paper. Gotcha. Um, yeah. And I mean, there were probably forms of kitchens prior to World War One. That's kind of where the history of what a modern food truck looked like. Um, from, but well, the military about, went one up it with an on-demand food truck. Well, and you know, like around here in our area, uh, our local Air Force base actually has a contracted Mexican food truck, um, and she comes in off post. Obviously, you have to pass background checks. But I think what has happened. So the military is a huge social experiment. That's kind of where we get a lot of what we see in daily life. They kind of test stuff with them first. And I think what the military did over time, they realized, hey, why are we contracting these companies to do it? Let's just get together because they have I mean, you're pretty much in a golden cocoon when you're in the military. They take care of everything. And I think what they did was let's just contract a company, build them, and then we'll just hire some of the, you know, some of the soldiers families to run these things. And that's kind of what they did over time, because from about 2015 to current day, they have eight bases that have some form of modern day food truck or trailer on them. And they are actually all contracted through AFES, which again is the air force <laughs> or the army change service. And then the MWR, which I mispronounced that earlier, it's morale, warfare and resilience. And they work with families around the base. And there's about eight different bases now that have food trailers. And I'm talking all, you know, there's several here in the United States. They've got them in Okinawa, Japan. They just opened up one in Germany, and I don't recall the base that it was on. So, I mean, it's definitely it. They are they're working on it, and I think eventually they will make it to the point that civilian food trailers are not going to be on post because they have it covered. I love that they're employing the military families to work them, though. Is that a normal practice? Yeah, they, you know, they, they search for them first um, because I actually didn't know this the whole time I was even in the military, but Athes itself, I thought it was a civilian company and it is not. It is actually owned by the DOD and then they contract um, 
civilian companies, for-profit companies to stock their stuff. So Athey's is actually owned by the DOD. Okay, well, that's very cool. I love that they're keeping that local. Um, I also love that there's different options. They're not just bringing in food trucks to serve military food. They're giving them restaurant-quality stuff, it sounds like. Yes, it is. And actually, I also, right here at the end of the day today, before we started this podcast, I actually figured out that a couple of the food trailers that are ran by the DOD and Athey's, they are, so when you are in the military and you're single, you get to, instead of you going off base and paying for fast food, they have an allotment that they take out of your paycheck every two weeks and it goes to feed you in the D-pack. If you're a single soldier, if you're married, you kind of got to figure your own thing out. But they have made it to where a couple of these food trailers actually have a system where you just scan your common access card or a cat card and it just takes it right off of that meal. Instead of you going to the DFAC for that day, you would just give them your ID, they scan it and it just charges it instead of charging it to the DFAC. Oh, that's convenient. They just keep all their systems set up together. Well, did you do any, I was like, did you happen to learn anything about other militaries? Is it just U.S. bases that have food trucks running around on them, or are there other countries that find that to be a convenient idea as well? Um, I didn't do a whole lot of digging into other countries. Um, I'm sure that our NATO allies do the same, but they're probably covered by the United States. It's probably the United States that is out doing the food trucks on those. But no, I did not dig into a lot of other different militaries. See, now that's a military position I feel that I could hold. I am no soldier, but I can run a food truck. Yeah. Like I if that was an option. <laughs> yeah. And, and when I say that they have food trailers and um, also field kitchens, they're actually two different things. So field kitchens are brought out by the DFAC and they're set up. Um, some of them kind of look like, they almost look like apartments from what I noticed instead of food trailers. And it's basically like a kitchen in the field and they feed you the stuff from the DFAC. But a lot of times those guys, they go out in the field, they don't want powdered eggs. Um, so it's just one of those things that they started allowing the food trailers to come out and do what they needed to do in order to keep morale boosted. It's very hard to keep your morale boosted in while you're in the military, especially when you're sleeping in the field for a month at a time. Um, but these, battle, these battlefield kitchens, they will typically serve about two to 300 people and they'll do it three times a day. And they also allow them to kind of customize meals a little bit. Just give them a commissary to work out of. Kind of. Yeah. That's, that's what it is looking like. The, uh, the company that the DOD has contracted to build these food trailers, though, is called Cassette Concession Nation. They were established in 2006, and I got on their website, and they say that they are the preferred food trailer builder for the DOD and, in specific, the Army. See, I, I, couldn't, I could not say that I am confident in designing other people's food trucks. I could design a coffee truck all day long, man, but... I do not think I could take on that job. I'm pretty jealous of those I could, though. I know yeah, there are companies all over the country that are building, you know, six-figure food trucks. And I, it's not even a surprise to me that the military has acquired a company to do something just like that. Yeah, and some of these names are actually pretty unique. Uh, 
like this one here, the one that, that that is down in Fort Rucker, they have the brick and mortar, and then they also contracted the food trailer out as well. It is called the Landing Zone. Um, and See, now they're keeping a military theme. I dig that. And I mean, it. What in the design on it, the soldiers sitting there with an Apache helicopter. Um, there's another one here that's called the Camo Kitchen. It's completely done in woodland camo with uh, an American flag. I mean, they they're they're pretty awesome. They they definitely have some money into them because see that we're in the process of actually trying to find a bigger food trailer and you were talking about six figure food trucks and even for the little bit of stuff that we need for our Mexican food trailer they're talking forty thousand dollars base and so I think we're gonna Abs absolutely I think we may hold off here and see what happens and we're definitely gonna get into some bigger events here soon hopefully try to make it worth our while. But one thing that well, I did. That's what the most of the business is about is just reinvesting and going bigger and better every year. Correct. Um, you know, I was, I actually have an interesting fact for you. I don't know if you found this and hopefully I don't cut into your notes there, but do you, do you happen to know the city with the most food trailers? I do not have that information in front of me. No, which one is it? I'm going to guess it's in SoCal. I'm going to guess it's LA. You are correct. The city of Los Angeles has the most food trailers with 715 of them. And Virginia Beach actually has the least amount with 28 of them. And that, that statistic was good as of this year. Say that again. It was good as of when? As of June of, of this year. So just a few months. I think here. that that statistic is only counting mobile trucks. I do not believe that statistic is including street vendors. Um, I don't believe that's including pull behind trailers. I think that that one is just trucks. And I'll get to that statistic. I I will look at page one of seven so far. But the, I believe there's another digit on that number, and we'll get to that here soon. But you're right. L.A. is insane. And L.A. is a good decade ahead of where we are in food trucks. And it is really just something to look up to. Gotcha. Well, you want to tell you want to tell us a little bit more about what you have discovered? Oh, absolutely. And we were just talking about food trucks and how not all of them are drivable trucks. Some of them are trailers and some of them are carts that you push. Some of them are pull. Um but if you go back to the 12th and 13th centuries, not all of them even had wheels. Um, we're going to give a little bit of attention to the Hucksters. H-U-C-K-S-T-E-R-S. -E Hucksters um, became common in the 12th and 13th centuries. And this term itself has different timelines and meanings. And so we're going to focus specifically on the medieval times because that's about where we got to. Um, in the medieval times, it's more often than not referring to a woman who would sell goods to poor citizens, she would carry them in a basket or she'd wear, you know, she'd wear the basket on her head and she wasn't always the classiest. Um, if you go over to Scotland, the hucksters were known because they would often buy a quality product like a soap or an oil or an ingredient and they would cut it with things like water and you know, flour and wheat, and they'd sell it a cheaper version of it that, you know, they just create their own generic name brand. And then over in England and Europe, it was a little bit different of a meaning. Um, you know, being a huckster more often meant that you were a woman who bought products and carried them in a basket on your wrist or your head and walked around in a flashy manner. 
and sold them to consumers at a marked up price. And these are the girls that you'll see in depictions of older times in the movies where they're wearing the bright red, green, yellow skirts and dresses and bright dangly jewelry. And they're walking with a basket of fruit on top of their head or they're carrying a basket of flowers. And, you know, uh, they would often take things from the main market that they lived in or around and they take them to other markets that didn't have the same items and they just sell them for a marked up price. And so that was just, you know, the 12th and 13th century of street vendors, you know, doing a quick markup. Um, but you can also fast forward to the 17th century because it's a lot of repeat in the following 14th and 15th and 16th. But, you know, we'll fast forward to the 17th century and we'll come across the pond and we'll come over to this continent. And so picture it. It's the late 1600s. This is back when New Amsterdam is, um, you know, common. It hasn't quite transferred to New York City. There's everybody coming across the pond. There's all different countries stepping down and trying to get their plants or get their feet planted. Um, so right as it's becoming New York City. Peddlers and hucksters have been in the city for a long time. There's people bringing their cultures across the sea, you know, and a lot like what we see today. If you were to walk down the streets of New York City, there is countless different cultures and diversity selling you their goods and their wares and their treats and their foods. And that, you know, kind of started back when New York City became a thing. So um, with, like I said, the waves of immigrants coming to America uh, there was different bit forms being available on push carts throughout the city. And surprisingly enough, shellfish like oysters and clams were more prominent than things like breads and meats because the availability was abundance. You know, right on the coast there, they just go down and they pick up buckets in the town and sell them. Um, and there were so many coming to the country and finding ways to support themselves that markets on the street became popular and not just popular, but they were crowded and there was occasionally not enough room for all the vendors that wanted to be a part of the market. Uh, so they took to selling their products out of carts on the street. And that was, you know, a big turning point. And they went from baskets and push carts um, to just mainly focusing on push carts and walking around outside of the markets. Uh, in 1691, that's when New York City began regulating these vendors because they became so abundant. The city tried to limit street vendors to only being allowed to sell up to two hours after the markets ended. But there was such a need for these vendors that it was hard for them to slow down or stop. Um, once again, like I said, most vendors were poor women that couldn't find work. So they would often source shellfish or even products that the market had left as they were closing and take them to the streets to sell them to provide for themselves. That, their, that was their way of coming up. Um, the idea of the food cart that originated in Europe followed the immigrants to their new country and would, uh, and many would take to the streets outside of credit markets. And like I said, in New York City, it was easier to travel that entire city by walking. Um, so we'll jump ahead to the 19th century there. And you're going to see an incredible jump. It's becoming more mobile in all parts of the country. And so people traveling by train was common in the 1800s. And this is still more Eastern in the country because we were still developing the West side. We were still learning about it. And so as we're hopping in trains and going across the country, 
um, you'd find dining cars. And the, the reason that you found dining cars is because before dining cars, trains would make water stops on long trips. And the water stops were pretty much just stopping, hop out, grab a drink, hope the water's clean, grab some food, hope you don't get sick back in the train and keep going. Um, that began discouraging people from taking train trips across the country. That would absolutely discourage me from taking, you know, a seven day train trip across the country if that was my option for eating and drinking on the way. So, um, that began costing the railroad lines money. And so of course they sought out a um, solution similar to what the army did. And the idea of dining cars was worn. Uh, that gave travelers the option for fresh beverages, hot food, and obviously a little bit cleaner and safer than stopping at the side of the tracks and, you know, whatever was available at that train stop. Um, so now we're getting into a little more similar to what you saw at the beginning when the Army started bringing in uh, food trucks. Uh, when the Army started doing it, I believe they did it on wagons, did they not? Yes, absolutely. They they started out as wagons and they would, you know, fold out, make it. And that's very similar to what I'm getting into. Um, not too long after introducing dining cars on trains, there was a gentleman by the name of Charles Goodnight. And he took to finding a way to feed cowboys on cattle drives from Texas to New Mexico. Um, so in 1866, Charles actually purchased an old army surplus wagon called a Studebaker. I'm sure you're familiar with Studebakers. I have heard of them. Well, the Studebaker was previously used as an ammunition wagon for the army. And he bought one of those and he built a box on the back of it and he built shelves in that box. And that is where he put things like utensils, ingredients, spices, condiments, and on the back of that box, there was a drop-down panel, and that drop-down panel will be used for preparing the meals. And inside the wagon, there was tons of extra space for things like pots, pans, and then, of course, they'd have to carry things like wood and cow chips for the fires. And then, of course, you know, there'd be room for the cook, and otherwise called a cookie, you know, to create a cookies. So the wagon itself was called a chuck wagon reason it was called a chuck wagon is because the word chuck was commonly used to refer to food back in the days of um, traveling the continent by horse. Uh, often it was specific to a lower quality beef. So, you know, once again, kind of like a hot dog, it was, um, you know, the, the lower quality beef, is, that term is still used today. When you go to the grocery store, there's chuck beef on the shelf. And that's, you know, usually more fat than beef and probably not as good as you know, the 80-20s that you're going to see on the shelf. So chuck wagons, you know, the term chuck stuck with it. And chuck wagons would commonly travel with groups like cattle drivers and loggers on their journeys. Um, they'd begin the day by waking up before the sun. They were in charge of waking up all the workers and getting them fed. And while the workers were eating, they'd travel ahead because they were lighter. They were able to travel a little bit quicker than the workers. So they would travel ahead so that they could stop and fix lunch. And by the time the workers caught up, they would just have to, you know, they'd have time to eat and take a rest. And then the wagon would once again pack up and head forward without them. And they'd get to the final stop for the day. So the wagon would be waiting at the end of the day's trail. And they'd have fire. They'd have dinner. And then the cook would go to sleep while the cowboys were eating and staying warm by the fire. Then next day he'd wake up and the whole process would go again and again. And that would just go from state to state. 
And that was a really popular thing out West. And while those were popular out West, things were still over on the East Coast, getting a little further ahead and advancing. Um, in 1872, a man by the name of Walter Scott decided he was tired of peddling papers for a living. He was sick of it. He's done. So on a whim, he decided to purchase a horse and a small freight wagon. So similar to what Charles did, he bought an old wagon, except uh, Walter took the time and he turned the wagon into a small kitchen. He cut windows out of the side. He took the wagon. He parked it in front of a local newspaper office. You know, there's some irony there. And he just started selling lunch to those who are working inside the newspaper office and anybody walking by. So that kind of sits still as the first food truck over on the East Coast. But by the late 1880s, a, name, or a man by the name of Thomas H. Buckley recognized the trend of lunch wagons was growing, and he took to manufacturing his own versions. And so this is similar to what the Army did. They say, hey, we like it. Let's make more. Uh, Thomas Buckley made so many that varied in color, different decorations, and even some of them even came with different supplies. Um, some came equipped with things like sinks, refrigerators, stoves. So it just varied on what you were looking for, but he was the person more for the pedestrian side and the commoner side to make their food wagons. Um, in 1892, Buckley introduced a really special top-of-the-line model, and he called this one the Tile Wagon, T-I-L-E, the Tile Wagon. And this model featured things like decorative lamps, uh, even had spittoons for the patrons. It had art, it had paintings, and all sorts of different decorations, the curtains. So this trend grew into the 1900s. And it got a little less fancy. It became a little more popular feeding workers on construction sites and landscape workers and other places where workers couldn't traditionally access a hot meal. Um, but that's where we get into 1917, just a little bit later. And that's when the U.S. Army launched mobile canteens like you were talking about. And they created the ability to feed their troops in the field. That's awesome. Um, so, yeah, yeah that's, it, it's very similar over there. It started just very similar to the military. It started in a wagon, and it met a need, and it grew into more of a novelty. Well, and you know, that I mean, I think personally everything that we have today is made out of a need, especially the food trailers. People got tired of going and waiting on food. Food trailers are meant to be something you can walk up, order food, and then just take it and go. You know, now you can walk up to a food trailer. Carry on with your life. Some of them keep with some of them keep seating with them so they can continue to so people can sit down and eat there. And a lot of it just depends on where you are. You get into a major city, that is not something that will happen very often. They typically want you to get your food and go. You go into bigger events and they, you know, there's 20 food trailers to choose from. Boy, it's so neat that you brought up the food trailers with seats. It takes me back a couple of years. Um, my boys and I were watching a documentary. I believe it's called Midnight Asia. It's a series and it just kind of went over different cultures in Asia's nightlife. And they highlighted different cities in each episode. And one that really stuck out to me 
was a gentleman who had, um, you know, picture the carts, the bicycle driven carts. You know what I'm talking about there? Absolutely. Okay. So he had a bicycle driven cart, except this cart behind his bicycle. I want to say it was a good eight, 10 feet long. And it was a bar that he could walk into that went down the middle of the cart with four or five bar stools on each side. And the gentleman would ride to a different corner in his town uh, once or twice a week. And he would bring select homemade spirits and you would only have two or three options on the menu that night, but people would sit at his cart and visit with him until he was sold out and then they'd get up and leave. And that is how he made his living. It was just a mobile bar selling his homemade spirits. And he even offered you bar stools on his bicycle driven cart that I thought was insanely convenient. You know, I actually seen one of those on the Food Network one time. You see a lot of those over in areas like Indonesia, um, places like that. They tend to have the pedal bikes with food on them. And those, I think that's kind of what helped make food trailers i you know that that's just my opinion that's not something that I've looked up that's not one fact. of the evolutions of that would make sense absolutely they, well here i've got one for that. you this one is a little bit weirder than a bike this one is a bobsled ever picture a food cart on a bobsled are we talking like go down the ice bobsled yeah, just picture, you know. All right, so the story is in 1920, there was a man by the name of Harry Burt. And you know an Eskimo pie? Just the ice cream covered in chocolate? Yes. Okay, so Harry Burt designed something that he called good humor ice cream suckers, which were basically Eskimo pies on a stick. The guy got him patented and everything. They're like, hey, it's the same thing. So you can patent the idea of putting a stick inside of one, but you can't have that patent on the product itself. And so he patented putting a stick inside ice cream and popsicles. And he was so adamant about this idea that he outfitted 12 street vending trucks in Youngstown, Ohio, with rudimentary freezers and bells. And he sent them out on the streets to sell his... Uh, good humor ice cream suckers and the very first one that he made was on his son's old bobsled and so there's some really interesting food for thought there that's that's a little bit further out than just taking your bike and throwing something on the back but you're taking your son's bobsled and selling ice cream out in the road did you just describe a modern what would turn into a modern day ice cream truck eventually it sounds like Eventually, that's the start of it. And I remember that's 1920s. That's over 100 years ago. And so we can even fast forward just a little bit. Uh, we'll go to 1936. The, and this one, this is this. It's fun noting this one. This I'm not going to call it a food truck and we'll get to why. Um, so in 1936, the nephew of Oscar Meyer, his name is Carl Meyer. He decided that he needs a classier way for that spokesman to get around. He needs a spokesperson to get around in style. So Carl Meyer designed a 13-foot metal hot dog on wheels called 
the Wienermobile. We all know it. We've all seen it. So here's why I'm not going to count the Wienermobiles, because the Wienermobile, I looked and I could not find any evidence of it ever selling food trucks. It was not made to serve food. It was made to bring attention to the food. You can get hot dog whistles, but you can't get hot dogs. And so that's a fun thing to mention. But it's not an actual food truck. It's just on my timeline that I, it was an honorable mention. That, so we're getting back to the ice cream. We'll go back to the ice cream. We're going to wait from the hot dogs for a minute. <laughs> uh, you were talking about developing the ice cream truck. Say what? Real quick. That thing is actually still rolling today. Me and my oldest daughter actually seen that thing on the way to Tennessee. It was out running around. I think we ran into it in Kentucky, maybe. We actually had to come through the lake back in 2020. Um, I know that because I was working at Margaritaville at the time, and it spent a couple of days parked over at the old Margaritaville. But at the same time, I'm going to give them some credit because I was volunteering for a um, local nonprofit by the name of Lake Area Resource and Education Center. And that was just something that was thrown together during COVID to still give our kids a chance to go have extracurricular activities. And they brought the Wienermobile to one of our activities at the park specifically for our kids to come have fun. And so a uh, shout out to Oscar Mayer Company and your 13-foot metal hot dog. Um, they did, I don't know, this is a fun fact for you. They did have to uh, scrap the original 13-foot hot dog because of the need for metal in World War II. The rationing, for when it came to rationing, they had to break it down and melt the original 13-foot hot dog because of needing metal for different parts in World War II. I don't know the specifics of that. I did not write that down, but I do remember that it is no longer in existence, the very first one from 1936. Oh, they probably had a couple since then, honestly. They, I mean, they... I think they've had a, about a dozen or two since then, but yeah, you're absolutely right. And they're bigger and better now. They even have, you can look it up, they have a mini Wienermobile, and it's just a one-person driver. So that was a pretty fun thing to see. That's awesome. All right, so let's get back to this ice cream thing, because that is definitely something that interests me. All right, so we're going to, we were in 1936, we're going to go another 20 years forward. So in 1956... There was a company, you know him, you love him, Mr. Softy. Mr. Softy was developed by two brothers in Philadelphia, and here's why I'm excited about this one. Um, they created a soft-serve ice cream machine that was built specifically. The only reason it existed was specifically for operation inside of a truck. So... You know, needless to say, we're getting close to having a Mr. Softy truck on the road for 70 years. We're coming up on 70 years here in about four years. I'm going to call that a success for them. And it, it was Mr. Softy? That's what the name of it was? Mr. Softy, S-O-F-T-E-E, -E, Mr. Softy. It was developed by two brothers in Philadelphia. And like I said, the only reason that this exists is because they designed an, a soft-serve ice cream truck to go, or ice cream machine to go on a truck. They literally designed Mr. Softy with an ice cream truck in mind. And they are still on the road today. They're bigger in the larger cities, of course. Um, of course, they're still very prominent in the Philadelphia area where they're from. But like I said, they're coming up on 70 years of being in service, and that's probably what I'm going to call the grandfather of ice cream mobile trucks, not just bobsleds and carts. 
you know, the one the one thing that really interests me is the progression of cost because like we said earlier, you know, you can spend a couple hundred thousand dollars on one of these food trailers. I mean, I've seen homemade ones that cost as little as twelve thousand and I've seen them professionally built to where they're up most to two hundred and fifty thousand before you even start getting into licensing and stuff. So I would definitely like to see Or stocking the product, yeah. Yeah, it definitely, you know, this is not an actual food trailer. This is one of these combat kitchens. But this thing, the procurement cost on this thing was fifty or $62,001,000 just for a combat kitchen. Um, obviously, the federal government is not going to pay that type of money. They ended up giving them fifty six five for it. No, they're haggling. That's cute. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Super cute. Well, I mean, they're spending more money on the next subject I'm getting into. Uh, you know it. I know it, we've all heard it. And I cringe at even the mention of it. Um, so I'm going to make this one quick. I'm just going to take a minute to touch on something. Anybody older than 60 is going to remember and probably often use it to describe food trucks. Any guess at what I'm going at here? Would that be the Roach Coach? Oh, it's the Roach Coaches. Gosh, it makes me cringe. Roach Coaches were really popular in the 60s, 70s, and the 80s. And they obviously referred to run-down style trucks that made themselves well-known in areas like construction sites and poorer parts of bigger cities. They'd carry the cheaper meals. They'd carry snacks, coffee, water, and sometimes even newspapers. If you worked on a construction site and you forgot to pack your lunch, didn't bring your pail, more often than not, the coaches were your only option nearby for a hot meal uh, or any food at all, whether it be hot or cold. So luckily, we've progressed past that time in history and regained the pride that goes along with owning your own food truck or your own food cart. And we can shake off the roach coach mentality. Yes, absolutely, because that is definitely a stigma that stuck with food trailers and trucks for quite some time and you even still hear it every once in a great while now i luckily personally have never come across one and i would like to think that we've got enough regulation out there to prevent those from happening but i'm, I'm not surprised by anything anymore so you never know i'll tell you right now at this point after dealing with some of the cities i think that that most food trailers well at least in our general area um most food trailers are higher standards than brick and mortar at this point They, you know what, they have far more inspections in a year than a brick and mortar. I know I, every time I travel to a different city, different county, I've got to go through a whole other health department inspection. Not all health departments even work the same. They vary from city to county to state. And, you know, you just have to be on top of your game. Uh, Camden County, they honor Missouri's restaurants, food and food, you know, food and beverage code. And so whatever the Missouri state code is for restaurants, that is what Camden County honors. Um, but then you get into the individual cities and they might have even more regulation. They might have, you know, <clears throat> the, they might be able to measure what your hood vent pulls out and say, that's not good enough. Go get it cleaned or go get it serviced. Or they might be able to say, hey, you know, I, I don't like the flooring on your trailer. You've got to get a different flooring. or I don't think it's clean. You know, they, they just everything's different. And it's always being on your toes. Absolutely. I've ran into some very strict health code while running the food trailer. Oh, speaking of your food trailer, 
We've talked about ice cream trucks. What's another kind of truck that's super popular out there? Another kind of food like truck. Like literally, what is like second to ice cream trucks? Ooh, I would either have to it's say. popularity. I would either have to say Mexican food or barbecue trucks, but I'm going to go with Mexican food here. Yeah, you should totally go with Mexican food. We're going to jump around for a minute. Uh, real quick, we're going to go back to the 1800s and just put yourself in different parts of Mexico. That's where the hucksters were. There were hucksters in Mexico as well. We talked about those earlier. Um, women in Mexico were known to visit work sites with baskets of tacos and other handheld Mexican fare to sell to the workers. So that could technically be called the inspiration for the current day and age taco truck, but they are in no way the founders. That credit goes to a guy named Raul Martinez. You ever heard of him? I have not. I probably should. Raul Martinez is... Yeah, he is the godfather of taco trucks, my friend. In 1974, Raul Martinez purchased an older ice cream truck. Going back to the ice cream trucks, props to the OG. Uh, he purchased an older ice cream truck. He did some work, and he converted it into a mobile taco-making station. And he was really smart about it. He decided to park it outside of a bar in East L.A. You know, going back to L.A., being the home to the most food trucks in the country, he decided to park his taco truck in front of the bar in East LA. And needless to say, it was an incredible success. It only took him about six months of being in operation before Raul was able to save up enough to open a brick and mortar restaurant. He and his wife opened it, named it King Taco. To this day, King Taco is still open in East LA. And he has since passed, but there are currently 22 King Taco locations in the U.S., all stemming from his taco truck. I have actually heard of King Taco, but I was unfamiliar with his name. Raul Martinez started King Taco from his King Taco truck. Um, the West, I mean, that's East Coast. We all know East Coast is, you know, pretty far ahead of us here in Missouri. West Coast wasn't far behind the East Coast. Um, throughout, we were in the 70s back there with Raul Martinez starting his taco truck. So you can go over to the 80s and 90s, and this is where we're getting into, we were talking earlier about our different like, stories and timelines of food trucks. This is the one that I had the most fun learning about. Um, this is going to be taking place over in New Brunswick, New Jersey. And this is setting up shop along College Avenue over by Rutgers. They would focus on areas near the college campuses and dorm buildings. These food trucks were famous for quick, cheap, hot meals between classes and during different events on campus. Know what they were called? I do not know what they were called. Uh, over on College Avenue, you're setting up. There's trucks flying in College Avenue. They are referred to as grease trucks. Uh, grease trucks, as they were commonly known, were students' source of delicious food that was mostly, you know, consisting of fried and greasy comfort foods. Um, so one of their creations, which doesn't sound too appealing just hearing it, it's called a fat sandwich. Fat sandwiches were on all the trucks all throughout College Avenue. They were considered one of the bigger sellers on the street. They would just take a sub roll and they'd fill it full of different stuff. Cheeseburgers, hamburgers, chicken fingers, french fries, falafel, mozzarella sticks, you name it. They're just going to pile a combination of comfort food into a bun and call it a fat sandwich. College kids went nuts. They lined around the block for it, quite literally. 
Um, as a mother of four kids between the ages of 13 and 20, this absolutely makes sense to me. I have watched my children order different things at restaurants and then just put them all on their chicken sandwich or put them all on their cheeseburger. And apparently they're just following a trend that I'm just now learning about. Gotcha. Um, so so uh, that was all rolled into one, one sandwich then? Are you... Yeah, no, fat sandwiches were just taking some of your favorite comfort foods, throwing them on a bun and going. So they, I don't read Maxim magazine. And so I missed this story until I began doing my research. But apparently there are fat sandwiches that have become quite renowned. Um, in August of 2004, there was a fat, a fat sandwich that had become so popular that Maxim Magazine decided to give it an award for best sandwich. I'm talking the Maxim Magazine decided to give a food truck sandwich an award for best sandwich. I'm not even kidding you. So there is this one particular sandwich. It was popular on College Avenue. It was called the Fat Daryl. And uh, it was invented by a hungry sophomore at Rutgers after a night of partying. I don't know if you can believe that or not. Uh, in 1997, a gentleman by the name of Daryl Butler, who uh, actually he was a pretty lean guy. He was a 160 uh, pound physical trainer and athlete at Rutgers University. Um, Daryl created the Fat Daryl when he went to a food truck by the name of Are You Hungry? And it's just the letter R, letter U, hungry. Are you hungry? Daryl ordered a chicken sandwich and he asked that they put on French fries mozzarella sticks and marinara sauce to his chicken sandwich he said in an interview that he ordered it because he was broke he ordered it out of necessity for a budget because if he had ordered them separately it would have cost him like three times the price so when others saw his creation the chicken sandwich that had french fries mozzarella sticks and marinara sauce on top uh, it spread like wildfire he said that the next 10 people in line behind him ordered the same thing that he said hey whatever you made him that looks good make it for me so before long, it became a menu item, and the gentleman running the truck sold that sandwich. Guess how much he sold that sandwich for? I'm talking that time frame, probably like 2 to $3. $4.75. So you, you gave him a little more credit, but $4.75 in 1997 for a chicken sandwich topped with French fries, mozzarella sticks, and marinara sauce. And the gentleman running this truck sold enough of those sandwiches until he was able to order a brick and mortar down the street called Are You Hungry Grill and Pizza? Are You Hungry Grill and Pizza? It is still there. And yeah, you know, I already looked. The Fat Daryl is still on the menu. But it's a bit more than four seventy-five nowadays, so you could thank inflation for that. I bet it is. It's probably around $14, $15 by now. I think it was... Uh, I want to say thirteen or fourteen seventy-five. Yeah, it was up there. It was a bit more. Um, yeah. But you know, on that same note, we're talking about Rutgers and College Avenue, and we're talking about over in New Jersey where these food trucks have been making a living. And this is where you and I are going to relate to this a little bit. Back in the eighties and nineties, uh, generators hadn't come as far as they have now. 
So they were even more loud. They were more obnoxious, but they were still necessary. So when the trucks parked along College Avenue, they'd fill the street with noise. They'd fill it with congestion. And eventually a nearby mall complained to the city that they were blocking the view of the mall. So local businesses complaining about the food trucks, the city took action and told them they were no longer allowed to park on College Avenue. So Rutgers University, knowing how loved and helpful the food trucks were to the students who were living on budgets and didn't have much of means for cooking their own food, Rutgers decided to take matters into their own hands. They dedicated a section of a nearby parking lot for the food trucks. Um, not only that, but they started scheduling different trucks for the spaces at different times just to make sure that there was no truck getting more business and opportunity than any other truck. And they even made sure they overlapped the times to make sure that you know the busier times were covered. Um, the university also planned for a courtyard, for diners, for benches and tables, along with a nice place to relax. But that part never came to fruition. You know, with the hectic schedule of college students, you'd find trucks open 24 hours a day, all hours of the night. Um, so that became a popular piece of information to know whenever the bars were closing. I'm sure you can imagine that. And that was so much so that the parking lot was crowded nightly with guests who had just left a closing bar and they just beelined it straight for refuge. They wanted greasy, cheap, hot, and they found the food trucks. Um, that meant there was noise, there was trash, and there was chaos. I even might have read some reports of public urination, all of that. Uh, they caused the city in 96 to enforce a 3 a.m. curfew for the food trucks. Uh, two years later, they changed it to 2 a.m. because of the bar closing time changing. So Rutgers tried coming to save the day. Um, they gave them the parking lot. The city had to come in and regulate it. 20 years later, uh, after Rutgers stepped in to save the day, the trucks were told they had to get out. They can't park there anymore. They have to make way for a new building in that parking lot. So, unfortunately, College Avenue is no longer a thing. The food trucks of New Brunswick have been scattered throughout the city. Rutgers gave several new locations to the food trucks, but they told them that no more than two food trucks at a time could park there just to keep the clutter and the noise down. So it's sad to say that nowadays you can't find the streets lined with grease trucks at Rutgers, but you can still find trucks throughout that area that will leave you happy you decided to have a cheat day. Get yourself a good fat sandwich.